I'm Adam McGee. And I'm Andrew Snyder. And you're listening to Captured in Celluloid, a podcast about movies. This time, we're going to talk about the latest release from the ever-prolific Steven Soderbergh, and that is Kimmy, starring Zoe Kravitz. Andrew, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Um, I've steered back into Mr. Sports mode, so you know my movie watching has been delayed a little bit. But I'm I'm happy to be talking to you about movies, and you know it's always it's basically like a movie version of therapy, where it's it you know it resets my zen, and then I come out of out of these calls, podcasts, if you will, ready to hit the ground running, and you know immerse myself in the world of film and you know that's where we're about to do right now yeah you've look you've had a slower week or so which we'll forgive you've had good reason for that uh but just to let you all know because longtime listeners will have heard you know plenty of times where it's like andrew come on what do you mean you haven't watched that yet andrew's doing really well you're gonna you're gonna hear the fruits of this particular labor very soon um and probably just over a week from now we will finally do our own personal list of favorites from 2021 and then we'll do an oscar preview pod so you, you'll hear us talk a lot about the kind of the movies that have been uh the source of discussion in the movie world in recent months and will continue to be in the run-up up to the oscars and some of our own favorites that didn't factor into that at all and andrew has done his homework in maybe the most comprehensive way he's ever done it so well done i'm, I'm genuinely that sounds condescending but i'm proud of you andrew you're doing really good film work Thanks, coach. I've got a pencil behind my ear, taking notes. I'm, uh, you know, maybe maybe I'll come out of this with uh, a whole new appreciation for film and a screenplay under my belt. We'll see what happens. Well, I, I look forward to that. Okay, so for this episode, we're going to talk about, as I've alluded to, is Kimmy. Uh, Kimmy was released just a little over three weeks ago now, I feel like. Um via hbl max in the u.s on my side of the world in the uk and ireland it landed on sky cinema about a week 10 days ago so i don't know i actually haven't looked i'm guessing there's probably some territory somewhere where this is getting a theatrical release but it's not the territories that i know of this is straight to streaming and this is not necessarily new territory for Soderbergh, who in recent years has worked quite a lot with Netflix, who even more recently, he does have this ongoing deal with Warner and a HBO Max that like in the really across the course of the pandemic. And I mean, this is then, as we'll talk a little bit about, this is a pandemic movie and um, not just in terms of when it was made, but in terms of what, what's depicted on screen, but He's had Let Them All Talk, No Sudden Move, Boatland on HBO Max. Predating that, High Flying Bird and The Laundromat went to Netflix. Um, and if we're to go back just before that, I mean, basically since he came back from his retirement, um, since he, he did his whole Michael Jordan thing and then he came back, Logan Lucky and Unsane, he, he looked at self-distributing um, and... I think eventually kind of found some sort of partnership, I think with Bleecker Street, um, but was was largely trying to self-distribute those movies as an experiment and see how that went. And he's someone who has a reputation for just being pretty fearless in terms of experimentation. 
in both form, in both technology, and certainly in the, the means in which his movies get to their audiences. And this is continuing that particular um, that particular line of interest for him and openness. But I I also think this is maybe to me this is the best looking of those movies. It's the most cinematic of those movies. This is a movie that I absolutely adore, and I want to really kick it off with that because I wanted you like you you've been busy as I mentioned watching movies from the last year movies that feels like you might want to see that to be able to kind of put together a really informed favorites of the year to talk about the Oscars, all of that stuff. And when I watched this movie, I was like, Andrew, you need to watch this now. And part of it was undoubtedly, as we get to, it speaks to a lot of my interests and a lot of the things that I like to see in movies, but also it unbelievably feels like a movie that needs people to kind of, I don't know, evangelize for it because it may be directed by Steven Soderbergh. It may be directed by the director of the Oceans films. Uh, it may be written by David Kep, who like wrote Jurassic Park. Um, it may start someone who within a few weeks is now like on screens everywhere helping the Batman to gross a whole lot of money by being Catwoman. And yet, this is a movie that's really, really good that it feels like is going to get lost in the streaming shuffle and was kind of lost in the streaming shuffle already. And unless you're like, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to watch every Steven Soderbergh movie. I don't know if people check this out. And that's why I want to talk about it. Did If it wasn't for me being like, Andrew, you need to see this movie. What would your awareness of this movie be like? Like, what's... For example, like if you've been on HBO Max for any reason recently in recent weeks, is, 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 is there like big Kimmy banners or anything like watch Kimmy? Because I kind of assume that's not the case, but. I mean, it was pretty much lost in the shuffle in terms of like HBO Max branding. I'm pretty sure I had to search for it when I went and watched it. And so it would have only been out, you know, the two or three weeks that we mentioned when I finally got to it uh and it, it's very easy someone like me who does his best to, to keep up with movies and likes movies probably wouldn't have got to it for a while i mean just because of that and soderbergh for me is it's it, it's kind of a blind spot i mean i've seen a handful of soderbergh movies but i don't know if it's just the prolific nature of his filmography that's kind of tough for me to just be like yeah i'm gonna see every soderbergh movie i'm gonna get to every soderbergh movie i mean like a perfect example is i still haven't seen high flying bird the laundromat let them all talk and no sudden move it's just like maybe it's i feel just really offended by soderbergh just being so productive like if, if i have a to-do list and it gets past three or four things like i i just you know uh send well, myself in, I, a, in a doom that? spiral Go because ahead. part of my concern with that is they're the streaming movies. They're the movies that, unlike like when Logan Lucky lands and Logan Lucky lands in theaters, to, to like give an example of something that I think a lot of people would feel is lesser Soderbergh, not me, but I think a lot of people would feel Logan Lucky is lesser Soderbergh, but it's still like you've Daniel Craig, you've got Adam Driver, 
uh, Riley Keough and it like that that movie kind of popped like there was noise around it noise which you can't generate in spite of the fact that a lot of these movies you said for streaming have had like real stars but it's like there's a massive difference between something like Logan Lucky and these let alone getting into like Magic Mike or even I guess like stuff like side effects and contagion pre-covid like they still they were events because you got movie stars big kind of traditional releases obviously the oceans films are class examples of this class a examples you've got aaron brockovich like something like that out of sight like soderbergh has gone through the full cycle of when we can now look to oh that's when they still made like studio movies that would get studio push while he's someone who broke through as one of the most important independent filmmakers, back to Sex, Lies, and Videotape. But for me, when you list those movies, that speaks to my concern with Kimmy, because I think that's true for a lot of people, which is just, oh yeah, they're there. Maybe you hear about it at the time, but then they're just like on Netflix and they get lost in the shuffle on Netflix or lost in the shuffle of HBO Max. And you move on about your life and right? you watch the big thing that comes out that those platforms really want you to watch that you're kind of bombarded with when you log in. Yeah. And it's, it's part, I, I think for me, part like a, a psychological thing where, okay, these are released on streaming. They're not in theaters. So even, even a film that got both at a relatively similar time, maybe I'll think, okay, this is a big deal. This is something I need to see. Um, but it's also like, so psychologically, I, I have that thing in my brain, but it's also like, like you said, a marketing thing. Like I was, um, in in New York last week, and walking through Times Square through the a- airport, I see the Batman and Turning Red posters splashed everywhere. So it's it's clear these movies are are coming out soon, and you need to go see them. And they matter for something you're like seeing it everywhere. Yeah, and something like Kimmy is just not getting that same push. So it's you know for me, it's part the the marketing behind it, but also I'm someone that that knows just because this is being released on HBO max and I'm not going to see it at my local cinema, that that doesn't mean it's necessarily a lesser product, but still for some reason, it just, in terms of my viewing habits, since Logan lucky, it's just new Soderbergh comes out. uh, Okay. I'll get to it. Forget about it. And it gets lost in the shuffle. And that's coming from someone that thinks they like movies. So it's just, it's really interesting um, how that happens. And I imagine I'm not alone. Yeah, and I mean, the interesting thing with Soderbergh is he just doesn't care about that in an abstract way. Like, he just doesn't waste time thinking about it. He's, any interview, like, he's he's a pragmatist, and he's a very smart guy, and he understands that he has some clout. Like, he is someone that can go to streamers, or he doesn't even have to go to streamers, I would wager. The streamers come to him, and they're like, hey, do you want to make some stuff for us? We'll give you X amount of money, you'll have complete creative control you could do whatever you want with it like and that is like you go through those recent movies he has been doing whatever he wants like the the variance in terms of the scale of those movies the subject matter how he shot them he went through his whole iphone phase um where some of those movies are completely shot on iphone and he was just having fun with oh look i can put this camera in all of these different places and uh, i think just like on a completely formal sense to look at his recent movies whether they all necessarily work or you'd like them all, I think there's a lot of really bold stuff going on because he's someone maybe more than any other filmmaker who's been empowered by this shift. 
instead of like having an existential, I don't know, Chris Nolan, Denny Villeneuve, uh, Martin Scorsese kind of, uh, Scorsese is probably the wrong person to put there. Spielberg, someone who I guess is more vocally opposed to the idea of streaming. Instead of having that kind of crisis, that kind of feeling of fighting against this, he's just been like, oh, they're going to let me make movies? Great, I want to make movies. And he is prolific, and that's whether he's writing his own stuff or whether it's a case like this where it's it's um, written by a very notable screenwriter. He just wants to make movies, and he's going to have a colossal filmography, unlike really any of his peers, it feels like, but the time he does actually retire for good. And I kind of take my hat off. Like, that's that's cool. That's There's something about so many of the great filmmakers, whether you're going back to the 30s or you look at the 50s or even some of the new Hollywood guys who really kind of made it true, you know, 70s, 80s, still working truths today. And you've got this, like, behemoth body of work that doesn't feel like something that most working directors now are going to have the option of having like if they've got 15 movies they'll have done unbelievably well for themselves like it'll be kind of right at the upper echelons of just being able to get stuff made and yet the way Soderbergh's going it's like yeah could he finish with like a 50 movie career yeah for sure and I respect that because it's also, it's not like he's just, what's the studio thing? Like I can jump from one thing to the other and just be the director. All of these things do feel like they have something that interests him. He's putting his own spin on it. And that is unusual and like worthwhile just in terms of having a director like that of his skill, who's lending his voice, his perspective to a variety of different movies and different genres with different tones and being like, I'm going to keep making this stuff. I mean, my only concern, if there's be any anxiety over it, it's like for, for all the talk over streaming being this massive equalizer and access, accessibility is there for people, which you know, it's kind of debatable, you know, because to go see a new Soderbergh movie in the past, you just needed whatever your ticket costs to go and see that movie once. Where now, if you want to sit down and watch his movies, well, you're going to need Netflix and you're going to need HBO Max. And then maybe to find some of the others, they could be streaming on Prime or, you know, on and on. I know there's lots of his early stuff that I don't think is anywhere else other than Criterion Channel. Like, that's that's something that's tricky in its own right. And I my concern is just that some people don't watch these movies when someone takes this approach now. And to me, Kimmy is like the the lightning bolt where it really struck me of being like holy shit this is the best thriller i've seen and i don't know how long no one else is making like a conspiracy thriller that looks like this that thinks like this that moves like this in a kind of very classical sense of oh i'm making a conspiracy thriller how should i do that i i can think of a film that's engaged with that that from all of its decisions from screenplay direction score acting it just feels like everything is there everything is nailed or you're like this movie knows what it is and it knows how to be it which is to me more important and we don't necessarily see that much of like i can imagine this exact script going to a lot of other directors and the movie just being completely flat being as disposable as something that just gets landed on streaming and people never think about actually is like let's be honest the vast majority of netflix stuff the stuff that isn't positioned in a oh, this is, you know, here for 
an award season released. We've picked it up because we want to win Oscars or we picked it up the stuff that just week to week that might land on Netflix in May. Like that's what Kimmy could be if it wasn't for someone like Soderbergh or if it wasn't for kept script being quite as tight as it is or a lot of the decisions that are made. And that's fascinating to me. And I'm here to ask you all to go and watch Kimmy. But that probably isn't the most convincing way to get people over the line. That's really just setting the table. So let's let's get into it a little bit more and talk about the movie itself. Will we, will we interrogate some stuff, some of the actual subject matter and the real world elements of this? Yeah, because I think there's a lot to talk about um, from a craft perspective in terms of like the actual filmmaking and like you said the tightness of the script but i think for me and and one thing i think specifically would appeal to people that like aren't so granular about why they watch films is i think what it's saying about the current world that we're in is very spot on and doesn't feel forced when a lot of times when you're talking about issues of like big tech and invasion of privacy it, it can feel like almost a parody of itself and kimmy like hits those notes perfectly yeah, I, let's let's start there. So there's a, there's a few kind of very much like it's unusual in that it's like searingly contemporary. You just you don't see films come out that are like, oh, was this made yesterday? Like that feels like right now. And that even goes true. I was listening to Soderbergh did an interview on the film comment podcast about this. And like the there's a Billie Eilish song that factors in here a couple of times that like at the time they're making it was unreleased but someone on the crew knew someone in Billy Eilish's camp and was like yeah sure you can have that like it, it's it was being made with music that was not yet released at the time it was being made which does kind of inform I think a lot of the decisions where it lands and you feel like oh this is like right now which is so again that's that's testament to how quickly he works to the freedom he feels he's getting out of doing these kind of movies for streamers and then moving on because a lot of the time, like these are slow moving freighters, like going across the Atlantic and the movie, if you decide to make a movie at the moment, the problem with that is it's going to be two years before anyone sees it. And the moment has passed. And there have been some movies that I think say some movies that came out around uh, 2018, 2019, that were very much about Trump, for example. And you're like, yeah, the, the kind of the quaint idea of Trump at that point is now like we've moved past that your movie is not speaking to that so it's one of the interesting things here that Soderbergh is like tackling the moment like right at the heart and getting to it really quickly so if you haven't seen the movie maybe you've seen the poster which has uh, Zoe Kravitz with her blue hair kind of peering around the corner and you've got Kimmy there and I think it's easy to assume like I did before seeing the movie that Kimmy must be the name of Zoe Kravitz's character that is not the case. Kimmy is the name of a piece of technology in the film, which is an equivalent. It's This is not like a... It's something I appreciate with the movie. It's not just making its own fake thing up to, uh, to like use as an analogy for this. So this is a world where Alexa exists and Siri exists, but there is also this product, Kimmy, which is very much like competitor to alexa um serving a very similar purpose with the the usp of it essentially being that 
this is not just all about algorithms. You know, we're constantly looking to improve how Kimmy can help you because we have a team of actual human beings who are monitoring any errors, who are going to fix any mistakes so that on a day-to-day basis, Kimmy is going to understand you, your questions, your needs, all the better, which is an interesting and terrifying prospect. Uh, I will say I do not have any of these devices in my home. Um, like I have, I have a phone, which is bad enough. I'm talking to you now as you're via a laptop and, you know, we're on Zoom. So I'm literally allowing the thing to record our audio. We have video up. I'm inviting the technology into the room. Um, but like Alexa to me seems insane to actually interact with it. Like I, I have a phone. I understand what, you know, is very likely happening with the phone, but I'm not a Siri person to the degree that I can say that I know my phone is not going to come alive because I have that turned off. I, I do not need to do that. When I see people like use voice control for their TV, I'm like, what are you doing? You could just use the buttons. It's fine. Like you're not, you're not saving that much time. I, I don't understand it. And without being like kind of phobic of it, I think it's just so obviously dystopian to just completely open the gates wide we definitely give up enough of ourselves just by participating in modern society. We're already giving up a lot of control, but I find these devices and people's willingness to turn to them to be really interesting. And Kimmy is certainly playing into that. Um, Zoe Kravitz's character, who is called Angela Childs, she is one of these people who monitors Kimmy's streams um, for this company, this tech company, which... They're approaching their IPO. So they're a new company about to hit it big at the time where we pick up in the film. And Angela is, her job is to monitor these streams, to help Kimmy to uh, identify any problems. We get a sense of, you know, it could be that it doesn't understand slang terms or dialect stuff or just other confusions. She's there remedying these until one day she stumbles across a muffled audio track with some music playing and she hears a scream in the background. And this is the blowout of the movie, which I can't just pretend isn't here because it's very important and long-time listeners will know it's one of my favorite movies. And it's very clear that David Kep, by the way, writer of Mission Impossible, Carlito's Way and Snake Eyes for one Brian De Palma, um, decided to oh what if we made a modern blowout which is something i have spent a lot of time thinking about i was like well what would be the way to make this now and this is a really interesting way to do it where you can actually recreate some of the travolta sequences where he's doing kind of the tape to tape editing and all that kind of stuff but do it in a modern way um it leads to a very cool sequence in the movie and i before you finish there i'll say they were they were making this for you with the specific uh, blowout references, but they also had me in mind because as we know, this is a COVID movie. And one of the uh, kind of defining factors of Angela Childs is the anxiety over COVID and the virus keeps her within her apartment. She doesn't like to go outside. She has trouble, you know, interacting with people outside of her apartment. And we get these shots of her looking across the window to, 
uh, someone she struck up a relationship with or strangers. And then for me, we get the rear window aspect of everything with the gentleman who's frequently looking across the street with binoculars. So blowout for Adam, rear window for Andrew. There was no way we weren't going to love this. The conversation is also in there. Like it's it's got some big, they're really obvious touchstones. And people that are into movies are not going to not going to fail to notice them but like they all work and it's a really intelligent way of taking the core ideas both visually psychologically thematically that work in those movies and applying them to our modern world it's something that's very obvious like for example did you watch the voyeurs i know we talked about it, but i don't know if you ever got to because i think i probably needed you to watch some good movies uh that's a loaded question. Do you not want to say on microphone if you watch The Voyeurs? That would be perfectly understandable. I can just explain The Voyeurs. I, did, I didn't people. watch the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, The Voyeurs is a, a streaming movie to fit into this conversation. It's a movie that came out on Prime last year um, starring Sydney Sweeney that was very much like shares some DNA of the setup of this movie, which is like these kind of open-fronted glass buildings, one overlooking onto the other, where you're just getting people, they're living their life looking from one to the other. Um, And The Voyeurs is much more closely tied, as the title would suggest, um, to a character, two characters on one building, becoming particularly enthralled and fascinated with the people that they're able to watch in the other building and their lives becoming entangled. Um, that's a play here though, too. Like, and that's, that's ultimately kind of crucial for how the movie works. And the voyeurs is like, it's, it is trashy. It's got some, some good ideas. It's got some nice pieces of style. Um, it was also just kind of cool to see a movie like that one a thriller too it's kind of an erotic thriller those movies don't get made at all anymore um but when i saw that last year i was like this is kind of interesting mostly because it existed um directed by a guy called michael mohan i'm not i'm not recommending that here as much as i'm just saying it was something that it came to my mind of like oh i have seen someone try to do some of this recently but what the voyeur has lacked is maybe just some of the some of the polish and also just the expanse of like Soderbergh's ideas for how to move between those two buildings, for how to ground the film in a particular space. You alluded to Angela's kind of anxiety and reluctance to go outside in this COVID world. And there's other reasons as we get to beyond that. She is definitely agoraphobic. Um, that's been brought on for a reason. We learned that. We certainly see lots of other elements of her character that I, I think could be characterized as like obsessive, obsessive compulsive even. Um, and that is all very effective for establishing the character and making the space take on a dynamic of its own because it's not just a location. It's not just this one room because this is where we're shooting and because that's convenient for COVID reasons, which it would have been. But it's also the room is doing something like it is serving a purpose. And David Kep, by the way, also, for those who don't know, I didn't mention yet. He also wrote the screenplay for Panic Room, uh, which is 
definitely not like uh, unrelated to some of the interests I guess that come back at play in this movie so the big tech elements and I guess a lot of the anxiety that that brings up into play and the ideas of uh, I don't even want to say like the infringement of big tech on people's like private spaces because we're past that I think the movie fully understands that but just like the the everyday nature of it and the pervasiveness the fact that it's just part of the furniture it's just there in the corner of a room and that people don't think about it and it's it can put them in all sorts of uncomfortable spots or it could do potentially it's something that you know i guess people could have conversations with a with an alexa in the room sorry for anyone who has an alexa and is playing this out loud and we keep saying alexa because that could be annoying uh but if you have one of those devices in your room, like, are you having conversations that you wouldn't have with another person in the room that you're having with your smart speaker in the room? Like, I think there's Here's some of those thing. kind of things that are interesting in the movie. Why well, I don't like any of this because it's like, I know these machines, if some employee were to go rogue, they create like an AI version of your our voices sure. and access anything they wanted to by pretending to be us because they have our information they have our credit card information they have our date of birth in some cases they might be able to access our social security number and it's just all so crazy to me i wish we could go back into a world where technology was a lot more limited that well we wouldn't have this podcast so who knows but anyway yeah i think this just goes to this movie does a good job of showing like how invasive it could potentially be even it inadvertently or well i guess not i won't spoil anything but maybe not so inadvertently the other element of real life and contemporary life and even much more contemporary that this film carries with it is covid and i love this i'm fascinated by this because it feels like a lot of the directors who made films that had come out kind of up until this point. So maybe they just started to shoot and COVID was happening. All of a sudden COVID was a factor or they even decided to start shooting during COVID. Like whether it's movies, whether it's TV, I feel like I heard a lot of people be like, no, we didn't want to bring COVID into the movie because, you know, people have had enough of masks and hand sanitizer and all of that stuff. They don't need to see it on screen which I guess is true. And I, there, there are probably times where I would have felt more like that than I do right now. But I also think it is important that there are some movies that just like tackle this full on and live in it. That 20 years from now, people are going to be like, oh, wow, <laughs> there was this like three year long global pandemic that turned everything on its head. What did that look like in movies? And pretty bizarrely outside of documentary like up until now there has been next to nothing there have been very few people interested in get, in engaging with it in such a direct way as this movie does which is characters wearing face masks uh, Angela constantly sanitizing her hands constantly throughout the films um, just even I think the exploration of what it does to someone to have had to stay at home like what it does to someone in terms of their social abilities, what it does to someone who suffers from anxiety to have had this 
real life big reason to be like, yeah, you probably should not be out, be out mixing with other people for, you know, a sustained period of time. Like that is such a seismic thing that's happened that for not for a lot of movies to just be like, yeah, we think it'd be better to pretend it didn't happen so that the movie isn't marked by that forever. I think it's good to have some movies marked by that and to, to look at how they navigate that, how they build that in and what they have to say about it. And I have seen one other movie very recently. I saw at a festival, uh, Claire Denis upcoming film, Fire, Both Sides of the Blade. I think it should be called Both Sides of the Blade based on what I've read. I do not know what it will be called by the time it's actually released in the US or actually in the UK and Ireland either. Like I saw it billed as Fire, parentheses, Both Sides of the Blade, which maybe kind of gives an idea of its current situation but that's a movie again masks are present the covid world is present um the idea i guess of people being forced together forced to stay together of then being out in the world and seeing other people all at the heart of that movie and it's all the more interesting for it where i'm like yeah you know what really good filmmakers should explore this and it's not a surprise me either that like people like Soderbergh or Claire Denis are like, yeah, I'm not afraid to put COVID in my movie. I don't think it's going to change it. It's actually an interesting tool to add to the movie. And in the case of Kimmy, like it's not, it's not like COVID is at the center of this, but this is the guy who directed Contagion and people spent a lot of the early pandemic being like, oh, Contagion really got everything right. So it is somewhat fitting that he was not afraid to be like, yeah, why wouldn't this be in the movie? Yeah, for sure. And I think it's really interesting to nail it as it's still happening. Because one thing that I kept thinking about when we're talking about what are the like, what are the COVID movies going to look like? The one that actually engaged with it. For some reason, as we were going through this, as I was watching that really terrible HBO Max uh lockdown movie i actually had this thought real time lockdown i think was what it was called was this um, the chill leisure for and hathaway one yeah it was that one as i was watching not that at all it was not it was not good i was thinking yeah we're not gonna do this again until we're years removed from covid I, and then like the way we keep making world war ii movies or something well, like it's, that it's also or, though like covid is not a meat cute scenario right um i mean adam maybe one day you're in line to get your booster shot and you look to your left and you see you know a good looking lady or man and uh you strike up a conversation and you know a relationship blooms but nevertheless i kept thinking while i was watching that movie uh we're not gonna do this again like we're done for like during covid covid content because this is not landing well and we're only gonna have it like after the fact when we can like look at it with some distance and then we'll be like all right let's make a movie that addresses that time when we were all locked down or and scared of of a virus and so that's kind of what surprised me about kimmy and going into this i didn't know that that was going to be heavily factored in but it really does nail the anxiety and especially with some of the things that Soderbergh's doing with the camera that almost creates like a a sense that you're actually having a pan attack as Angela is is like trying to engage with the world or or almost engage with the world so I thought that it 
it was particularly like you said, fearless for Soderbergh to to dig into this material when we're very much still not all the way past it and then kind of nailed the sensation of what it feels like and especially what it felt like when we were like dead center of everything. So it's almost combining <laughs> like several different anxieties, like uh, the anxiety of COVID, the anxiety or sensation of like, you you're right about something but nobody will listen to you don't look up tried to do that but failed miserably and uh kimmy uh in a, in a different way you know, this was a safe space this is a safe space nailed it um so yeah soderbergh took a lot of risk with the subject matter and just like all the modern elements he tried to bring in and, and it really works a lot of that comes down to also uh, which we'll get into later, I'm sure. It's just the performance of Zoe Kravitz. I mean, she's really good because, I mean, in this role, she has to be paranoid, but likable, and but also like competent and intelligent and good at her job and someone that ties all these different facets of her personality together to create this just like one fully formed human being that's believable in this scenario. And so it it was a tall task to take on and, and it all really just, you know, comes together. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I think it's, it's something that just adds so much to the movie and whether I don't know how much of that is just purely kept script or Soderbergh's decisions on set or just a collaborative process between them all. Like I know I've heard Soderbergh talk about, like the reason that Angela's hair, for example, is blue and then is later pink was just something that Zoe Kravitz was like, yeah, people were like doing their own hair and then just doing all sorts of wild shit. So she's like, why not make her hair blue? Uh, like, it's not just something that's there in the characters. It is, they, it's something they consider to be, well, what's reflective of how people were living their life during this time? And it's the idea of, oh, well, you know, people were away from, from others and kind of doing things that they may not have been doing for themselves prior to that and that's just an example of one kind of costume choice in the movie that's that's also informed by the period um i I think all that works i mean to to also then bring it to some of the some of the craft maybe you should stick there i think the costume the production design like this movie looks great looks absolutely great um that film comment interview with soderbergh that i um, already mentioned one thing that I learned from that, which I had never really thought of. So the film is set in Seattle. And we probably should have mentioned that. It's obviously based on a lot of the tech stuff is not an accident, that choice. Like that's very much intentional. Um, But it was also in shooting in Seattle, Soderbergh said they they had fully envisioned this movie as being a movie that was just rain. (laughs) Like rain for the whole backdrop. They thought it would look dark. They thought it'd be covered with rain. They had an 11-day shoot, I believe was what he said, which is insane to me. Um, And he said they had 11 days of just like the sun splitting the sky in Seattle. And they just had to adapt to that. And he's like, it turns out that was great. Like, he he can't imagine the film any other way. And neither can I, because it has these really interesting, vibrant pops of color. And certainly when she eventually leaves her apartment... Um, which is not a spoiler because I think the whole setup of the movies, you know, it's leading you to she's eventually going to have to leave this place, go out into the big bad world. Um, but this, the sunlight then, it does factor in and it gives a real nice contrast. 
and kind of shifts the the dynamics visually of the film too. Um, but I think a lot of the costume choices, the production design, her apartment looks great. I I feel like that was all. I I read somewhere about this all being like soundstage. Um, I think in LA, like possibly even almost a Mandalorian type thing. Um, so you you don't feel that it certainly doesn't look like that you're not like this is the green screen apartment and all of this but i do think that is a lot of how that was done um the apartment looks great it's it's really well designed and it's also just perfectly kind of set up for how the movie wants to navigate through it which is i mean getting to the kind of stuff which i probably bore the hell out of regular listeners which is i just want movies to I want directors when it comes to making a film to be like, what's the film I'm making? And then what does the subject matter, the themes, the ideas, the characters at the heart of the film, like what, what did they dictate the film should look like, should feel like? How do I make it stylistically? To me, this is, this is cinema. That is what films should be. It's, it is what separates it from theater, like which too much of what we see for me is theater. It's you write a, great script it could be and then you're just like let's put a camera in front of this and there's nothing really interesting or cinematic about the decisions when it comes to framing or blocking or editing like this movie is so far removed from that because all of those decisions are like loaded with something that is contributing to character so for example when we're in the apartment we get a lot of really smooth steady dolly shots um, kind of gentle pans even we got a really great pan between buildings from one to the other while there's a text exchange going on which is just fantastic like a plus for making two people who can see each other from buildings text each other look interesting like that's i i don't want to shit on the voyeurs that's in a movie like that though that's just shot reverse shot you're like oh let's get this character looking out the window and let's just cut to the character on the other side looking back outside their window and audiences understand you know how space and time works in movies they'll know they're looking at each other where it's like no well how could you make that visually interesting that's something we see happen here but where you then have i guess the smoothness the stillness of the interior um even in some kind of really interesting scenes like the anxiety to me is heightened and kind of hyped up inside with the editing. There's a great scene um, just before Angela receives a pretty important phone call for the direction of the plot and um, where she's just kind of made a big discovery and she's kind of having a meltdown where we get like this dissolve of her visualization, I guess her imagined sense of the scene that she's heard play out through Kimmy audio and her in this kind of, heap on the floor in despair and we get the images overlaid onto each other uh, it's just like whoa like this is just it's so bold compared to what you're gonna see in most thrillers that come out now they're not thinking to do anything let alone something that's kind of as visually interesting and abstract as that is um and then when we do move outside sorry go on i was gonna say that yeah it's i don't know if that's just because of what you're talking about with the I, I mean, I like a lot of movies like this, like a, a play on screen. I I like those from time to time. But sure. the the mo the moment where we get her visualizing the crime that she's heard, like, is genuinely shocking when it 
happens because it's not something you necessarily expected to see in this movie. And I, I think it's just another risk that he took. And then uh, before you keep going, I, I think for, as an as an anxious person, uh, I will say that it's the, the weather, uh, the weather luck that they had or bad luck that they have actually works so perfectly because you know, when you're just riddled with paranoia and anxiety and everything inside of you is just an absolute mess. Having that, uh, like thematic, uh, contrast and going outside into this beautiful world that doesn't at all look scary or dark, I think actually like kind of highlights just the, the futile way that she feels when she's like, just so gripped with fear that she can't go outside so that that ended up working perfectly but go on sorry about that well to that i think the other thing that works out with that is that that break they got with the weather being good that mirrors like kimmy that mirrors alexa that mirrors siri this idea of the happy smiling faces of these like tech things that are here to help you it's like this kind of falsely idyllic world where now we've got like there, there's that old sense, even when like the stakes are pretty high and the elements of conspiracy and certainly Angela's anxiety are like true the roof in the movie. And every person who comes into the frame, like as an audience, you're like, is that is that that person? Is that them? And um, can we trust that person? Like all of that playing out against this kind of really very pleasant looking sunny Seattle background is a perfect analogy for like big tech, which is, oh, we're here to help and we're making your life easier. Um, but the trade-off for that is just the background, which is, you know, we're collecting, harvesting, selling, um, manipulating all of your data. Um, like, I, I think that also, it works in that regard. It like, it matches the tone of the movie and a lot of the ideas are there. But I mean, beyond that, when you go outside, then the thing that's kind of the big shift is we get a lot more handheld and without getting like shaky camera where you're going to feel ill, like it's all super sharp and polished, but you just got Dutch angles everywhere, which I've, I've kind of seen some glib criticism of it, of kind of leaning too into that. I'm just like, no, <laughs> like that is not something to be critical of a thriller for. It really is not. It's like, you've got that's what that's what these techniques were basically invented for like th this is where they should be used and where they're not used in a lot of places where they're appropriate in contemporary cinema where it's like i wanted to see a director who has imagination and who has just a visual sense of storytelling that they're like we're gonna get a really anxious character who's agoraphobic who does not want to leave their apartment and we're gonna bring them outside we need to make that look and feel for the audience just as uncomfortable as it would be for the character. And through the use of Dutch angles, through the use of much more kind of frantic camera work, that's conveyed and communicated. And it creates this greater sense of unease and it, it helps the movie to pick up momentum at the point where it goes outside and it leaves her apartment, which is kind of crucial too, because as much as you're waiting for that to happen, when she actually does it, like you're like oh she's done it and it's like okay well what is there here so for the movie to change to evolve in a visual sense i think is really important and it does carry it from there and like i guess speaking to that again i mean one of the things that um would probably have, i haven't touched on here but like for someone who uh, goes and takes a look at 
the credits for this movie you'll see uh, cinematography by Peter Andrews and editing by Marianne Bernard which are uh, both Steven Soderbergh he shot and edited this movie himself and that is the case for really all of his movies for a very long time that's how you will see and um, the credits not unusual other directors do this too um, where they will use generic terms generic names that are kind of industry standards and in jokes when they're not taking the credit for cinematography and editing but this is what Soderbergh does and he is he is a master in those realms like this film is edited about as well as I've seen any thriller again in I don't know how long that's in both the the very literal sense of editing that bothers me when people just think this is editing which is yes the film is like 89 minutes like it is super punchy and um, there is nothing wasted it's as efficient as it can and really should be for the story it's telling but also just in the choices of cuts um, I already mentioned like some of the interesting decisions that he made um, for cuts within the house within the apartment but like that's it's again it's crucial you're making a conspiracy thriller your editing has got to drive that like there's no there's no writing that is just going to carry that off on its own because it's a movie at the end of the day. So if you're going to have chases or if you're going to have attempted kidnappings or things like this, you're going to have to cut them in a way that's building momentum and is visually exciting for the audience. As for the cinematography, there is one sequence of the film where Zoe Kravitz, uh, Angela, is like running true flights of stairs and we kind of see around the corner and the camera is like the camera's like rocking it's we've got dutch angles as we have true like all of that you're looking at very very severe um angular kind of portraits of zoe kravitz's face you're really kind of soaking in like her physicality throughout the movie it makes great use of that i wasn't quite aware of how good she is as a physical performer I say that having now, just before we recorded this, I saw the Batman and that's even more apparent to me now. But there's just one of the most impressive, just, I guess it's just like basic craft, but it's done so well, pieces of cinematography there, pieces of camera operating that I've seen in, again, any film like this for quite some time, which is she rounds the stairs and the camera movie is really, really frantic we're seeing her kind of, I guess, sway to and fro, round corners, up and down. And we're in lockstep with that, but it's still so smooth. You know, it's, it's just, it's a level of control, a level of craft that is, is elevating everything that's in the story, everything that the actors are giving performances to an entirely different level. And it, it's really the kind of the hallmarks of a Soderbergh movie. I, I do think Soderbergh does this really well. Um, at the end, we will talk very briefly about some of our favorite Soderbergh movies. We'll give top fives. Uh, I know, for example, there is one movie in my top five, which is another great example of this, where it's just like, oh, Soderbergh's just like, fuck it, I'm going to make a thriller. Like, nobody makes thrillers like this. So I'm going to just go and make like an action thriller. And you're like, yeah, you know what? You could do that as good as anyone, just like you can do all these other things. Um, but it, it really kind of comes across and hits home there. Anything else? I, I actually don't want to, I don't want to do spoilers and I don't want to go beat by beat through the plot because I do think this is something a lot of people won't have watched and I want them to watch it. So is there, is there anything else you've got on, 
I guess, general setup or even just thoughts on the movie? No, I think that I guess the only thing I would really say is this is like I we're we're talking about all these little nuances and kind of I mean Dutch angles is how I see the world when I've had too many cocktails and and I'm stumbling out onto the street after a soccer game but all these little nuances and crafts about what makes this movie what it is but for me Kimmy is like very much a accessible popcorn movie for a lack of a better term like I mean it's it's something I watched it by myself but She'll never listen to this, so I can say it. But it's something that I could uh, make my wife watch with me, and she wouldn't be like, "What the hell did we just watch at the end?" Like for something a little more, uh, what's the word I want to look for? Uh, highbrow or abstract or high highbrow or abstract are good. I was gonna go with pretentious, but that would be mean to to me and yeah, but to great filmmakers. The point you're making, like this is Soderbergh, like, and that's what makes him great is he makes like the most mainstream movies but he makes them with the craft and with the ideas that are coming from all of these other different movies like that's his entire career in a nutshell which is the great thing about it which is also why it's like i don't like i don't know what the audience is for this in a theater anymore like I, i'm particularly now in the current moment like you could release this it could make two million and then it's a massive flop and people are like oh you know we can't we're not going to pay Soderbergh again. Like it, it is probably worth more to Warner Brothers as something that they can just be like, oh, we've got new Steven Soderbergh movies, whether you're watching them or not. Like that's part of our HBO Max offering than it is to put in the theater and have no one go and see it. But the other part of my brain is like, if you could get people into it, people would love this movie in a like packed theater. They would lose their shit and you could have a really broad audience. Like, just a regular mainstream audience going to a movie and you could have some absolute asshole like me being like, oh yeah, I love what he's doing with the Dutch angles or I love this choice or I love where it's evoking blowout there. You could have someone who does not know or care about any of that stuff and it's just like, well, this is a really cool, fun movie. Like it's it's a fun conspiracy thriller. It's like an action movie in parts. Like I like movies like this and that's what makes Soderbergh so great. Like I, I'm fully, I, I think anyone could, I'm not surprised that you're saying you could show it to your wife and be like, yeah, that's not like some of the other, some of the other crap that you probably try to make her watch that I may be partially to blame for. Um, but that's because that's the magic of Soderbergh. Like, and that's his interests are, yeah, he wants to make like Hollywood movies, but that doesn't mean he just kind of discards all the other stuff he knows about cinema and cares about and knows that makes effective his career is very much about how do I bring all of that in and make a Hollywood movie better because of it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, couldn't have said it better, but also I'll echo things you said about Zoe Kravitz. Then the next time we speak, I will have seen the Batman. I have right. not to this point, um, but I'll agree that this is the first time where I was like, holy shit, Zoe Kravitz is about to be someone that's like, anchoring movies for the next 20 years she's fantastic in this and and she carries it i mean i i think i first i guess the first time that i like zoe kravitz stood out to be in a role was in a bit part role and she didn't have a lot to do she was mad that was mad max fury road i know she's been in 
like she's been in a lot of movies and then she also had a uh one of the, one of the main roles in Big Little Lies. I never I watched that's the, uh, that's the standout thing I think for me even as someone who did, wasn't crazy about that show. It's the thing that's just like there in my head that I will I will think of like it, it, she was in Mad Max Fury Road but she was really at, at the back of the, that particular troop of characters too um, which is kind of a murder as well like those people were all she is now maybe the most important but they have all had a moment where they were import, important cultural figures so there's certainly some good casting at play there but Big Little Lies feels like the thing that she's kind of there at the front of the queue for now I haven't watched High Fidelity I don't know if you're going to mention that I believe her High Fidelity show was great and a lot of people were very disappointed it got cancelled and this would actually make me very curious to go and watch something like that where she's carrying it because uh, I do think she's got that in her uh, it's it's worth mentioning like if you're listening to this when we release it the week when we release it tied to what our next episode will be which is about the Batman too maybe this is the boost maybe she'll just go on and just find ways to plug the shit out of Kimmy but she's hosting Saturday Night Live this week so Zoe Kravitz star is certainly soaring at the moment. Absolutely. And as, as it should be, um, we've also got a bit of uh, I don't want to call it stunt casting. It's only stunt casting really for you and I, but Derek Delgadio um, for a minute of itself, which we podcasted on plays the uh, plays a tech bro is all I'm going to say for risk of getting in too deep, but like, just the absolute perfect like this bland white guy is going to tell you why his product and his like his innovation is going to change the world that guy exists and Derek Delgadio nails the uh partially in some points like false insecure bravado so just a perfect casting there um and then uh Rita Wilson uh in a problematic uh up to no good girl boss role just absolutely perfect i did not expect to just come out of a movie in 2022 and be like oh shit rita rita wilson killed it in her 10 minutes so uh there is there is a piece of actual stunt casting that is interesting we didn't mention we talked about some of the uh the cinematic references um, that this movie is clearly drawn from. And one we didn't mention was Home Alone, which this movie is full-on drawing from Home Alone. I will not say too much here, but Devin Rattray, who plays Buzz, um, Kevin McAllister's older kind of bullying brother in Home Alone is in this movie. And he plays a character called Kevin. And by the time all said and done, you're like, yeah, home alone. I guess, yeah, she was home alone in her apartment. And like that, that's very, very clever and interesting tongue and cheek casting. I, given recent events, I would like us to uh, all the money in the world him with the larger gentleman from the show Love. If we can just CGI that guy's face on there, I would enjoy that. <laughs> from the show Love, they're like, that's not the Gilly Jacobs. Yeah, the the idiot guy that dates the Australian girl. Uh, oh yeah, just yeah, because yeah. he's just because Devin or Trey's had some problematic things happen in the last few months. Oh, I've missed that. So <laughs> I'll, I'll have some googling to do. Anyway, 
Will we move on to our top five Soderberg's? Let's do it. Let's get the embarrassing Andrew. I don't know why you think it's embarrassing. Way. Like you're giving your top five. No one necessarily has to know what you haven't seen, unless it's super obvious from what you're not listing. Uh, but I don't think my top five Soderberg list is necessarily in lockstep with what would be consensus or with what a lot of people would expect. I think there's two movies in there that people would expect that I think the other three may not be in everyone else's list, but I'll let you go first. So if you don't, do you want to alternate? We want to go five, five, four, four, work our way through it. Sure. Let's do that. Uh, number five. Pro- I would say this is probably the one I've rewatched second most on this list. Um, saw it the first time in theaters i've seen it on a few different planes because you know you're scrolling through they don't have a a a lot of good options uh and it speaks to me as uh as a man from the state of north carolina that's gonna be logan lucky i love it this did not make mine but is just outside um like would be my number six and i feel that is a hot take but i love logan lucky um yeah that's I mean, we talked privately about that at the time, how you felt about Daniel Craig coming in as Joe Bang and uh, representing your people. And I guess it's something he's he's greedy into because we've had Benoit Blanc since. We'll have that again in the Knives Out sequel. Um, but just an absolute delight of a movie. Him and Adam Driver are so good in that movie. It's really entertaining kind of like we we're talking with Kimmy and just like oh you know there's not a lot of movies like this or whatever they're not this well made like that does apply to Logan Lucky too like kind of a comedy caper like that doesn't get made very often and certainly doesn't get made as well as that one or end up being as entertaining as it was number five for me is a film I was making reference to earlier in terms of other times where so everybody's being like, yeah, let's just make an action thriller. And it's Haywire. I don't know if you've seen Haywire, um, the Michael Fassbender starring movie that is actually very rare. I, should, I shouldn't say Michael Fassbender starring, but the reason why I was going to say that is because um, it's a rare like Hollywood movie that just like shoots authentically in Dublin like has action sequences through the streets of Dublin. I cannot tell you how thrilling that is to me. So particularly after you picking Logan Lucky as your number five, uh, I think it's fitting that I go to the Soderbergh movie that's set for large parts in Dublin in an action sense. That does not happen, but also has some other scenes um, around Ireland with Fassbender. Um, But Gina Carano um, is at the front of this, speaking of, you know, problematic figures. She's really good in the movie, unsurprisingly, as like a stellar physical presence for an action movie. At the time, it was something there was a lot of conversation about, but it does speak to Soderbergh's eye and some of the interesting decisions he makes where he's like, yeah, I want to make an action movie with that MMA fighter at the front of it. And Haywire is just tremendously entertaining. It's so fast, so kinetic, it's so alive. It's exactly what you would want that kind of action trailer to be and what you expect it to be because Soderbergh's making it. Uh, number four, I don't really need to get into this very deeply because it's Kimmy. I, I mean, I think it's just an incredibly tight 
uh, modern thriller that takes in some of the uh, things we're talking about and matter most to us today. And just for all the reasons we said over the last hour, uh, it's a really tidy, awesome film. Uh, Kimmy is my number three, which I feel like people maybe who have not seen Kimmy yet might think we're insane for like the new HBO Max Soderbergh movie to be up in our top fives. I'm being 100% sincere. Kimmy is this good. Go with an open mind and open heart and watch it and be like, damn, wasn't that fun? Remember when the 90s when people used to make movies like this? Because uh, there's certainly an element of that to it, but as we've spent a lot of time outlining, Soderbergh does that, but it literally goes, but what if we made movies like this about the 2020s? Um, and that's what Kimmy is. Okay, so number four for me is a film I actually only watched pretty recently. I had, I don't know, I didn't see it at the time it came out. Maybe I had the wrong idea about what it was, and that's because it's Magic Mike. I don't know if it's the marketing, but I was like, I don't know if this movie is for me. Um, I don't know if this is the movie I'm supposed to go and see. Turns out this movie is for everyone. Um just great like star making Channing Tatum um Soderbergh has kind of understood and used Channing Tatum better than basically any other director and is the the crucial person in shaping him as like a list star that he now is um Matthew McConaughey is amazing in Magic Mike just so well made again so entertaining it's like the thing you can just bank on with a Soderbergh movie is you're gonna be thoroughly entertained he can pick any genre he can pick any subject matter and you know it's going to be interesting. And you know, Magic Mike is just an absolutely stellar movie. Magic Mike was actually my number two. Okay. Um, I think this comes uh, before I move on to my to my three kind of backtrack is this comes like mid reconnaissance, and I appreciate it for that. You know, the Lincoln Lawyer that was okay. Might, it's might, like, even, oh. be a, might even be a starting point, really. I think. I think we get, I mean, Bernie, Killer Joe, Mud, I really like. And then we get Magic Mike, and it's like, oh, okay. And then Dallas okay. Buyers Club, Wolf so Wall Mud, Street, Interstellar. Mud was before Magic Mike. I, be, I believe so. According to the wikis I was looking at as I was making my list, right. but I, I don't know. No, then, then um, that's a fair point. I was thinking Mud came after. But yeah, it, it's kind of right. It's like those people, it's like the likes of Soderbergh and Linklater and Jeff Nichols. It's like all of a sudden all these good directors are taking interest in McConaughey and yeah, that leads to a point where he's relevant again. Although did that last very long? I don't know, but it was good. I think we're going to get a second McConaissance wave at some point. Maybe that's just wishful thinking on my end. He and I are both big soccer guys. Nevertheless, he's Um, a part owner of Austin FC, right? Yeah, I'm hoping that, you know, Charlotte FC makes a trip in 2023. He, he and I can, um, you know, hang out in the tailgate lot, throw back a few uh, ranch waters. But anyway, uh, number three for me is, because uh, my Jack Mike was two, is Ocean's 13. Uh, you know, we have we have Ocean's 11. I thought there was a little bit of a drop-off with Ocean's 12, and then we really land the plane uh, pretty nicely in Ocean's 13. And I'm just, I'm just a sucker uh for those characters and that story arc and like 
Clooney being used in the best way Clooney can be used. So, you know, I'm a big Oceans guy, and that'll become even more clear in a bit. Like a big Oceans guy in terms of like Atlantic Ocean, Pacific Ocean as well, or just the movies? Well, I honestly, I don't really fuck with natural bodies of water (laughs) in terms of putting my person in them. I'm very scared of sharks. I just know... I just know I'm going to be the person that gets attacked by a shark. So I will sit on the beach with McConaughey, maybe said ranch water. And, you know, look at the waves cresting. We get sharks like the Carolinas. Oh, we get sharks. Really? Oh, yeah, we get sharks. Yeah. In my head, that was very much a West Coast thing. It's... I mean, it probably. I, I, I'm assuming you have. We're, we're going to do a, a, a Jaws entirely shark, like a shark bank, movie just episode. A shark episode. Okay. Yeah, a shark episode in July <laughs> during the doldrums. We're going to give you a shark episode. Um, you know, West Coast. I'm sure. I know there's a lot of stuff going on along the coast of Australia, things of that nature. Yeah, yeah, for a little sure. bit in Florida, but you know, we get some stuff in this area, and it's just like I don't want to take the chance. All to sit in water that is salted. That if I have an open sore on my leg, it just like hurts. Well, like, what's open the open wounds? <laughs> well, you know, sometimes just <laughs> if it's not too personal a question, you know. Uh, <laughs> well, like... I, I I actually do have an open wound on my leg right now. I have a puppy, and he right. it doesn't know his own scratching ability. <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, big oceans heist guy. I will say the interesting thing about this is I do not like Oceans Twelve very much. And I think critical consensus has come all the way around on Ocean's 12, where Ocean's 12 is thought to be the best of those movies by a lot of people. Um, I have not watched it in quite a long time because I do not remember appreciating it very much to begin with. Um, the whole, what was the name of the, the character? Uh, um, the name of the, the international thief in the mix. Vincent Cassell's character was... The Night Fox, which in its own right, the name, it's it's just doing a little bit too much for me. And his particular high sequence was doing a bit much. And there's a, a lot of very, I guess, ballsy, clever meta stuff going on with Julia Roberts. But yeah, it just never quite worked for me. I did like, I liked 13 more as it felt more back to basics of what the Oceans movies are. But yeah, that's an interesting choice. So I can't lie. So is that is that ahead of Kimmy? Is that what you're telling me? Well, you have to know that most of these okay, movies I have not seen not seen in a oh, while. Oh, but you've seen Kimmy <laughs> at Ocean's Thirteen, so that's what we've established. I'll you know I'll I'll take that one out and you off air. Um, number, are we over to you or over to me? We're we're over to you because I think I've all. I've no, got all I think we're back to one. you. Oh, okay. You've done your two. Your two was Magic, Magic Mike. Mike, right? Yes. At two for me is the Limey. I believe it's safe to say you have not seen the Limey. The Limey is. I've not. Turn of the century. I can't remember if it's ninety nine or two thousand. It's a movie starring Terrence Stamp, who's daughter has been killed and he comes over from the uk to los angeles to seek revenge for his daughter being killed 
he basically teams up with a favorite of mine as a Brian De Palma staple, uh, Luis Guzman. And he, I guess, weasels his way into the world of crime and I guess like public facing celebrity and everything in Los Angeles and then sets about, I guess, his greater agendas. It's another one of these Soderbergh films, which it's super tight economic. It's like 90 minutes. It is amazing. Terrence Stamp's performance is great. Um, The dialogue throughout, I think it's written by Lem Dobbs, is fantastic. Just such a fun, fun movie. Um, Really, really different, too, to a lot of what Soderbergh was doing at that time. Like, this is a film that it comes between Out of Sight and Aaron Brockovich, and then he wins an Oscar for Traffic after Aaron Brockovich, then he was Ocean's Eleven. That's like in this mix, he just does the limey with Terrence Stamp, and it, it is an unbelievably cool movie, and I, I love it very much. Over to me. I think we're in lockdown so, here, so I don't think you're to be ashamed of. Okay, so we might be in lockstep. So uh, with the the number one spot, it is Contagion. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Ocean's Eleven is is my favorite Soderbergh. We talked about it on a pod when we unpacked the year. What was it, 2001? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 2001. Uh, that was your pick, yeah. right? That was you. It, that, your overall that was pick my pick. Yeah, so I've seen this more recently than Ocean's 13. Uh so <laughs> much easier to stand by it. But yeah, it just uh you know, the 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 best modern heist movie. It's 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 great, it's good fun, it's got movie stars being movie stars, it's got character actors being character actors, and it's just uh really great, and it's a, one of the great like uh I don't know if populist is the right word, but it's another great classic Soderbergh popcorn popular movie that popular also entertainment. This is what he does. Yeah. It's like just unimpeachable, great mainstream entertainment. Like, and there's not a superhero insight. There's not, it, I mean, yeah, it's very old fashioned for the reason of what it is now. And yet, like, if you did this like this, I mean, Ocean's 8 came out a few years ago, which was obviously like an all-female reimagining and pretty star-studded, although I I don't think competing with this and just overall not quite as good as a story by any stretch of imagination. It was fine. I think I I liked it more than most people seemed to at the time. Um, But really what I'm getting at is if you wanted to go absolute equivalent of like George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, and just continue down the line, in 2001 if you found their equivalents now and you put this movie together this would make like 500 600 million dollars no problem like there there is still something to the power of movie stars when they're put together in the right movie in the right way and when people have a clear sense of that coming in it's not unusual at the moment there's been a cool thing in recent years where it has become more common where big directors are able to pull just star after star after star but I don't know if it ever really has clicked with a project that's just as mainstream appeal where people see a trailer and they're like, oh, that's a heist movie. Or like, oh, that's kind of a comedy caper. You know, that kind of 
easy recognizable that's fun that's what i want to go and see and oceans 11 just it does that obviously it's drawing from it's a remake of the original the Pack version which had very similar star power but like before even going down the line where there's so much great great stuff there like i often think of like someone like even elliot gould like he's just an absolute icon and is brilliant in these movies but Clooney and Pitt at where they were at in their careers playing off each other like that side by side is is pretty great like that is Robert Redford Paul Newman kind of stuff like there's there's not a whole lot of that you get in contemporary filmmaking it's it's similar to a reason why like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was a big deal when you get Pitt and DiCaprio but that just absolute megastar these are the most famous movie stars on the planet and they are going to be buddies together in this movie like that works tried and tested maybe very difficult to actually get something together where people are going to agree to do that but it works and then you stack it down the line you've got your matt damon's your don Cheadle's, your uh casey affleck's your bernie max julia roberts is there like it's it's off the charts and just an amazingly entertaining movie like and it's it's maybe not the movie where, like, I don't think I could dissect Ocean's Eleven in exactly the same way that I would Kimmy even, for example. Like, it's it's not quite as kind of groundbreaking or inventive or playful formally, but there's enough there. It's like, oh, well, this is a director who just knows exactly how to make the kind of movie he's making here. And he's got the best possible people in place to make it. And you know what? You do that and you have a winner and it's a great movie. It's like, I was, I was thinking, I was like, well, like go for something else. Cause it feels like a bit kind of bit obvious or slightly like even simplified to look through his really interesting and vast filmography and be like, I'm going to go Ocean's 11. But I think it's Ocean's 11. Like you could do a very different type of list and be like, well, it's obviously sexualized and videotape. And fine, like I wouldn't dispute that. I'm open to someone's argument on that, but uh, I do think for me, what Soderbergh does best is just like lightning in a bottle, being able to capture what is mainstream movies at the time, what has mass appeal, and how do I make the most of it? And Ocean's Eleven may be the best example of any film of the current century to, to do that before we like bring in a wave of superhero movies, which are not being sold on like who's in the movie, they're being sold on what it is the existing ip that people are going to buy the ticket for regardless so i guess you know at some point in the next five years soderbergh's going to direct the next tom holland spider-man movie and we're just going to have to see how it goes um yeah soderbergh's a director because of how prolific he is i probably haven't given him the attention that he needs but you know we're about to come up to a time adam where my time is my own a little bit more in terms of I can pull a Jordan Snyder uh, movie watching schedule where I just watch the most random shit possible. So maybe I go catch up on uh, some of the Soderbergh I missed. That's a lovely quaint idea you have there. I'm sure I will give you some other movie watching assignments. Though. Like you've missed the Soderbergh boat now. That is true. You're going to be uh, like deep in Paul Schrader's filmography or the Palmas. Yeah. You know? Don't don't threaten me with a good time. I almost watched Breathless the other day, but uh, something came up. Good there, Pod. Is that what you're saying? 
Kadard <laughs> Pod 2022. All right, that does it for this episode. Um, you're going to hear a little bit more from us if all goes to plan, which is always a good thing to put in there because often things don't go to plan for us. Um, but the plan as things stand is we are going to be back um, early next week with an episode on the Batman. Maybe we'll similarly like not talk about other Batman movies, but share some of our favorites at the end of that. That's probably an easy exercise we could do. Um, but I, I saw the Batman today. I've got plenty of thoughts. Excited to talk about it excited for andrew to see it and um yeah we'll we'll go through all of that then off the back of that as i said we will have our uh annual epic which is our personal top 10 movies of the year um very excited uh i don't know if anyone cares if anyone listens but it's an exercise that i essentially will marry another devote months of my life to and andrew has joined me on that this year so it's an important, uh, you know, closing off of one thing, starting of another for us, if no one else. But um, 2021 was a really, really good movie year. I don't know if necessarily everyone is aware of that. Like, if you're not super locked in or watching all sorts of things. So maybe we can bring some new movies to your attention if you're you're not, or we can guide you some things you've heard about that maybe should jump the, the queue to be priorities. And then we will, before the Oscars, as we always do, we will kind of run through, give our own personal picks of what we would like the categories to look like, as well as to making some predictions as to who the winners will be in reality. All of that is to come before the end of March. So we're, you know, we're, we're locking in. Busy month, a lot of fun stuff to come. A lot of, a lot of Van Morrison to come. Right. Uh, if you like what you hear and if you don't take what Andrew just said as a threat, make sure you subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so that you hear all of those upcoming episodes. Until next time, thanks again to all of you for listening. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, Adam. <laughs>